welcome to the litigation psychology podcast brought to you by courtroom sciences dr steve wood special guest today bringing on some csi other litigation consultants bringing them on the podcast get their to get their take and on some information and i just i'm lucky enough to have one of my co-authors on a paper she was actually the first author i was the co-author to her to talk about a topic that she knows uh, a lot about and we're going to get some more feedback on it today that being the topic of dogmatism uh, but ava hernandez litigation consultant at csi ava thanks for coming on the podcast hey thanks for having me steve i'm glad this to is finally your, be here yeah it's your first time on the podcast right it is. So this it could is. go good for you or bad for you. Maybe uh, <laughs> yeah. we'll see. I'm nervous. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's all good. So you're you're going to be the star of the show today, um, talking to us about dogmatism. Like I said, you, myself, and Bill wrote an article for Law 360 on it. But this was really kind of your topic, your area, and you know we kind of helped fill in. But I think this is really, you know, where where your expertise comes through. So that's why I wanted to bring you on and talk about it because you can talk about it obviously better than I can. But just kind of for our audience, just can you kind of give us a general overview? What is dogmatism? What's kind of the theory behind it and the concepts? Yeah, well, dogmatism is kind of really interesting, actually. It kind of flowed out of some psychological research uh, out of the concept of authoritarianism combined with the idea of rigid rigidity and rigid thinking. Um, it started with this social psychologist in Milton Rokich back in the 50s and 60s. He published a lot about dogmatism. Uh, which was later sort of updated and changed by another psychologist named Bob Altemeyer in the 90s. And in the 90s, Bob Altemeyer really kind of solidified what um, dogmatism is and differentiated it from those other concepts as essentially he defined it as an unjustified and unchangeable certainty in one's beliefs, reflecting conviction beyond the reach of evidence to the contrary. So it's a belief that can't essentially be changed quite as easily as other beliefs might be. So Evidence call it doesn't like quite reach in. Hardheadedness of sorts? Of sorts, yeah, of sorts. And psychologists kind of go back and forth and disagree whether or not dogmatism is something that's kind of an overall cognitive structure, like a personality characteristic that will apply to everything that one believes in or if it's something that's really domain specific. So you can just not have a dogmatic approach to many things, but then have a dogmatic approach and a dogmatic cognitive structure and mindset towards specific things. So psychologists kind of go back and forth about that. What's kind of the prevailing theory or what's the kind of prevailing approach that's out there right now? Is it one, which one? Yeah, the more modern way of thinking is that it's domain specific. So it's something that can be applied to just one aspect in particular, rather than applying to the entire personality. That's the more modern way of thinking. Rokich would disagree, but he was back in the 60s. So he's no yeah. longer here to argue. Yeah, well, <laughs> and I think it's interesting, you know, from what we do in our in our jobs and our profession, I think we see that a lot, right, is where you probably see a lot more rigidity towards certain topics versus just a rigid personality across the board. Right, I'd say so definitely. And I think that's also a, a, a kind of a kinder way to, to look at humanity and a more realistic way to look at humanity, right? We're all so complicated and, and complex. It's a lot easier maybe to just say, oh, that person's dogmatic than to kind of dig in a little bit further and figure out exactly how their dogmatism applies in what arenas, et cetera. Yeah. And, you know, I want you to talk a little bit. I know there's kind of a couple different like open systems, closed systems. Can you talk a little bit more about what's an open system and what would that kind of look like, you know, from from the theoretical perspective? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this was kind of ideas that were really started by Rokich back in the 60s. And he thought that people had belief systems that were either open or closed, generally speaking. So generally speaking, people with, you know, open systems tend to be generally more open. Um, they don't see authority as something that's absolute. They're willing to accept other people um, based on their beliefs rather than that person's affiliation with a particular authority of some kind. They kind of have a, um, a big picture approach of looking at things. They can step back and take a big, broad perspective. Um, and they don't have as much tunnel vision when it comes to beliefs. They're willing to evaluate information on its own merits. Again, not necessarily tied whether or not it's tied to a specific authority or not. And what are those like the authorities, you know, we keep talking about authorities, but what do you what do you mean, for example, as far as what would be some authorities that people would tie their kind of thought process to? Yeah, thank you, Steve. That's a great question, because I think that when we're talking about dogmatism, that's a word that people usually hear in conjunction to kind of a faith environment, a religious yeah. environment. And that's absolutely not what we're talking about here. And, and Rokich and other researchers, psychologists who studied this really blatantly are explicitly differentiate this from um, being assigned to a particular religious affiliation or political affiliation or anything like that. It can be across the board. And in fact, there's some research on dogmatism in, in academics of, of people who can get so dogmatic about even such niche specific beliefs in, in academia in their certain fields that they could be considered dogmatic in that domain. So it really can apply to anything. I and mean, you could be dogmatic about anything. You could be dogmatic in your faith and you could be certainly be dogmatic in your you know, political affiliation, but it can apply to beliefs about anything. So my beliefs on gender, it could apply to my beliefs on you know, which fast food restaurant is superior, et cetera, and so There's on. There's definitely some anything. Whataburger. There's water, yeah. some, definitely <laughs> some Whataburger people here in Texas that would be like that. <laughs> I, I believe it, Steve. <laughs> when I think the other thing too, is when you think about it, I, it could probably go for, you know, large corporations as well. When you think about it from a jury's perspective and how they feel about large corporations. Definitely. You could be dogmatic about that. It's just the belief of whether or not a large corporation can um, can behave humanly, whether or not they can be, they should be respected, those sorts of things. People can absolutely have dogmatic beliefs and sort of a more rigid cognitive structure about those things, even as niche as it is. Yeah. And the open system is more what you would think you would want from jurors, right? The ability to see both sides, the ability to not let bias, prejudice enter into their thinking, you know, the, the ones who can, who can hold off any sort of judgment until they get into the deliberation room, which you know, looking through rose-colored glasses, I think that's what we would want to believe. But the truth of the matter is, it's probably not what we really see, right? We probably see more of what in this closed system, uh, which you can talk a little bit about, about what what typically is really more like what we see from jurors. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but it's it's true a lot of the time, you know. And and that's the problem with these with with people with with the with these closed system beliefs. The problem is that if you have this sort of dogmatic belief system about something. You're, you're, as the definition says, it reflects conviction beyond the reach of evidence to the contrary. So maybe your belief is grounded in a reality that makes sense to you, but in the context of a particular case or in the context of the evidence attached to a specific case, that dogmatic belief isn't useful, it doesn't quite hold as true. So if you have someone who's kind of coming in with that mindset, then you're kind of stuck with a next to impossible time right? Because they are incapable. It's a, it's a, it's a 
it's a bias. It's a cognitive bias. Rokic believed it was a cognitive bias. So it's something that can't just sort of be switched on and off that as much as we might like to think that by the power of our ability to persuade, it's not necessarily something that we can just change. And what's been your experience? I know that obviously you and I have, have done some work together and we just actually just came off of a, a mock trial together and we were talking more about this, you know, but what's been kind of what you've seen as far as jurors in mock trials about their dogmatism and how that kind of plays out in both the kind of the group dynamics and how they how they address things individually? Yeah, I find it to be utterly fascinating the way that this kind of comes in and plays out sometimes, especially when the dogmatism is attached to a belief that you kind of didn't expect. Like, for example, um, we've I've been doing a few uh, jury projects lately where marijuana has kind of come up and, and been at issue in some way or another. And it's been absolutely just fascinating to see the ways that people's dogmatic beliefs about that influence everything. I had a juror in a focus group a few weeks ago who was absolutely uh, pro-defense the entire way. And then when we revealed at the very end that there had been potentially some marijuana use involved, that was that issue, she completely changed. I mean, eight hours of being pro-defense, you know, defense, hearing everything. And then as soon as she heard that potentially this, you know, that... Uh, a, a party in the case had potentially had marijuana involved, everything changed. She couldn't, she couldn't incorporate new evidence that would change her deep set, deeply held, perhaps very unconsciously deeply held beliefs around marijuana use. It just, nothing could change her mind. That's interesting. And I think it kind of, yeah. And it, it kind of goes to like the idea, like of cognitive dissonance as well. And you were talking about it being kind of a cognitive bias. I mean, imagine you're someone who's like, staunch against marijuana and and all of a sudden now you've sided with this this defendant and then you hear that and now you have it like okay well i'm staunch against marijuana am i going to kind of go against my preconceived beliefs and say right. okay in this situation i've seen evidence to show that this person's not at fault but this evidence you know but can i do that in the face of marijuana you know and it's almost like if you overlook it then all of a sudden you've had to basically unring that bell that you've been ringing for so long and re kind of reevaluate the thought process of, oh, am I really staunch against marijuana? And if I am, then I need to act with consistency to say, oh, well, this is going to be the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Right. And I think you bring up a great point, Steve, which is sort of that you're, ask, you're asking people who are dogmatic about certain things to completely change their entire belief paradigm just in that moment. And as much as we like to think that we have the power to do that, psychologically, that just ain't going to happen. Yeah. You know, the, the, this kind of change is something that, you know, clinicians would tell you would take years, you know, of sort of solid cognitive work to affect that kind of dramatic change and shifting from thinking this is wrong to eh, this is a gray area and black and white, you know, not quite as black and white to me anymore. That's a huge shift. And I want to acknowledge that there's actually, there's not a ton of research into the why behind dogmatism. You know, why do people get dogmatic about certain things how does this kind of come about we have some qualitative research you know some studies where we're where people are kind of sitting down and asking more questions instead of doing kind of um quantitative uh psychological research from people who are in dogmatic environments and who have experienced dogmatic ways of thinking and that's where we can get some of this information as to the whys so i just i have a lot of um respect for people's dogmatic beliefs in the sense that I understand how, how um, 
intense it was to perhaps arrive at that conclusion that all of the layers and all of these things unconsciously consciously that are in place so that people have and hold these beliefs are something that um, could have taken a lifetime could be attached to something much deeper than you or I could ever really fully understand you know so it's not something that they can turn off in the blink of an eye based on a little bit of new evidence unfortunately and I think that goes to a point too that we talk about about jurors and people in general not necessarily knowing where their thoughts come from specifically it's like the idea that we always see in mock trials or focus groups of hey what if i gave you this information how would it change your thinking right. by that time usually the jurors are so locked in that you're trying to get them to now reanalyze and they're not really necessarily really good at being able to tell you oh that would really impact it or a lot of times what we see is right. nah that wouldn't really that wouldn't really move the needle for me but it could have in a different context which i think is interesting with you when you're talking about that person with with the marijuana use so most people would probably say, nah, yeah, I don't know, but that for that person, they were able to say like, oh no, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that will. So like you said, it's, it's interesting to see what was the underlying notion to that, but most people have no clue whether a, how much something will impact them and b where, where it's really coming from. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, unfortunately we're not always aware of our own beliefs or the sort of the, the frameworks that make up the way that we see the world. We, we, we are often unconscious of how we kind of came to those. I mean, it's rare to kind of sit down and analyze, why do I think the way I do about this? And then to have sort of the, the, the capacity to actually reach past our own defenses and get to the point where we can see that clearly, right? Sometimes we want to protect ourselves from the reasons why we've come to our own conclusions too. We're, we're complicated creatures. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think another thing talking about being complicated, you know, when you were talking about kind of experiences that we've seen in focus groups and mock trials, I had a similar incident, sort of with what, like what you're saying, but I had an incident where we were doing a medical malpractice case and, you know, these jurors didn't find that the doctor was negligent, but they wanted to give the plaintiff some money. So even though I would say like, so you don't think they, they did anything wrong? Well, well, not really, but you still want to give them money. Well, then what they try to do is they start trying to back into excuses and reasons, right, to hold the doctor accountable because they want to give someone money. They want to give the plaintiff money for someone who's been injured and they know they can't in the face of the evidence. So what they got to do is try to identify something that they can grab onto. And even in that situation, even though they couldn't explain really the reasons and a strong reason why, all they knew is they wanted to give them money. So they were just like, well, that's the reason that's it. And then they latch onto it, even though everyone's like, the evidence does not show that they did anything wrong. It's like, yeah, I know, but they should have done something differently. You know, and I think that's yeah. always, that's always interesting. I think you probably have seen that as well. These pro plaintiff jurors that like, doesn't matter what the fence is going to say, they're going to give money and they're going to figure out a way to give money. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that um, kind of goes to a few things, you know, but definitely dogmatic in the sense that if you have this idea that um, a, a larger, oh, I think a, a dogmatic idea that we see a lot of belief is that uh, sort of the the larger institution or organization is is has to pay the most regardless of actual allocation of fault. It's sort of jurors will latch on to someone who they perceive as having the greatest amount of resources and just sort of want to put all of the damages there. Um, I think sometimes they think, you know, it's it's a lot easier for them to to uh, uh, punish in some way something that's faceless and nameless that's a little bit colder than an, than an individual. But absolutely, I mean, these 
it's it's so difficult because in that case, exactly, you have people with these dogmatic beliefs where even if the evidence points to something else, they aren't able to incorporate that evidence into their actual framework of, of belief. So you're sitting there talking to them, trying to persuade, trying to communicate, trying to showcase additional evidence. And you have you may have people nodding back at you, but but it is not making it in cognitively. It is not making it into their mind. It is not being shifted around. It is not being sifted. It is not being considered. Quite simply, and I think you know what you were just saying there. That really kind of sums up what we refer to when you talk about closed systems, right? That this what you were just talking there about not allowing that information to come in. It's just in the face of information that's contradictory, they just kind of shut it out, block it out, and not and don't let it in. Right. I think it's. It's it's not wanting to be faced with sort of complex information in that moment that might have to shift their decision making or shift their viewpoints. They're not able to kind of in that moment and in the time that you have at trial or you know whatever situation you have where you're presenting evidence, there isn't enough time or space or ability for people in that moment to consider this opposing viewpoint, to hold it against their own viewpoint and to look at what's true and what's reality. That's that's not gonna happen in the middle of a trial. So yeah, this, this, cogn this cognitive bias of this closed system thinking um, and belief systems and some jurors, something that actually inhibits, you know, ac accurate decision-making because you're not actually considering all the pieces of the puzzle, you know, you're really only incorporating what makes sense to you. I think, you know, so from a jury selection standpoint, if you were going to go in and, and, you know, do jury selection for a case, kind of, well, how would you approach that in order to identify these dogmatic jurors, whether it's, <clears throat> whether it's the plaintiff or the defense that they know nothing I'm going to say to this person is going to get through to them. So obviously that, you know, you're going to try to use a peremptory or try to get them for cause obviously first. I mean, then right. if not, at least, you know, they're kind of high on your list for peremptory strikes, but kind of what would be your approach to identify these dogmatic jurors in voir dire? Yeah, I think first, if if it's possible, you know, for counsel to really assess the specific themes or the issues which people could have potential dogmatic beliefs about first off and kind of have that in a list going in, whether it's in sort of in these cases we've been dealing with, if it's marijuana or if it's beliefs about corporations or belief about healthcare providers or whatever it may be to kind of have those themes and those potential uh, things there where you can kind of test them. And then I would really work in, in Vaudier or Vaudier, however, however you're pronouncing it around the country. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, in Vaudier, I would, um, really kind of work on setting the stage, you know, as you wrote, Steve, in our paper so much about, you know, from your perspective in social psychology, how often people's responses to questions are just the socially desirable answer, right? They're going to give you whatever you want to hear. So I'd, I'd work carefully in voir dire from the very beginning to kind of normalize thinking against the grain to really let jurors know it's okay to disagree with something that you're saying. You want to hear it, really let them know you want to hear it. So that hopefully the best that you can, you set the stage for people being willing to answer your questions correctly. And, and Steve, you laid out some great questions in our paper too, kind of asking specifically about, you know, for example, if jurors are, if you have an issue in your case about, you know, healthcare providers, then asking, who, would you always or never trust the testimony, you know, of a health professional? We are really looking for these absolutes, people who are willing to, oh yeah, 100% all of the time, right? And depending on what side of the case you're on, you know if that's a bias against you or, you know, never, I would never trust a healthcare professional. And those absolutes can uh, be a bit of a key 
for some dogmatic thinking in that specific domain, particularly if jurors respond affirmatively to more than one of those sorts of questions where you're asking them these absolutes. The more that they agree with, the higher chance that you have that those are people with a more dogmatic, you know, cognitive structure. I think you make a good point on that too, right? The idea is consistently on these absolutes. You know, a lot of times everyone will think, oh, if they answer yes to a certain question, then automatically you have insight into into their belief structure. But I think to your point, multiple questions, it's going to be a big picture that you're going to want to paint. So like you said, developing questions and then counting kind of the number of times that they're agreeing to these absolutes versus, oh, they said it once, then, you know, we, we got a good read. Right. I definitely be careful with people, you know, answering something once, you know, obviously you could, then you can do more follow-up questions to kind of dig in from there. But if you have people, even if it's twice or more with these sorts of absolute kind of questions, then that's kind of a yellow flag, red flag for you there. Yeah. So let's say hypothetically, one of these jurors, these dogmatic individuals make it onto a jury panel, kind of what's the approach that an attorney should use then knowing that, you know, whether it's dogmatic in their favor or not, is there an approach they can use in openings, closings, and how they approach the case in order to kind of get through to these people or what, what, what can be done? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's really tricky. And I, I did a whole, I did some research before this, D, because I was curious if anyone has really kind of looked into applying behavior change or cognitive change to dogmatic individuals in particular. And the research is really slim to none on that, right? So, unfortunately, kind of looking at that in particular, what what I would say, drawing from what I know about kind of behavior change in general, cognitive change in general, applied to this potential dogmatic cognitive structure to a particular domain, is that you're not going to have the best chance of persuading someone by kind of doing your usual argumentative argument of, hey, you know, this is what person A is saying, here's all the reasons why person A is wrong, right? So kind of giving all of your your factual reasons or your good evidence for why something isn't true or doesn't work might not be so successful because they're simply not even being considered. Your arguments aren't being considered. I think it can be more useful to help these dogmatic jurors see how your perspective in the case actually aligns with what they believe. If there's any way of kind of approaching it from that front, that's your best means of success. Not necessarily saying, oh, my viewpoint is against yours. Here's all the reasons why you should believe it. But rather saying, hey, look, our viewpoints aren't that distant from each other after all. Here's all the ways that mine actually make sense in your world. Here's all the ways that you don't have to go against what you believe in order to buy into my story to really make that effort to in some way respect their beliefs in the sense that you aren't begging for them to change, but you're just showing them that it's not all that inconsistent from what they're thinking after all. Yeah, I think that I think that's excellent. Uh, it's a very, very smart uh, approach to have, having getting jurors on your side. You know, I'm curious, like, how did you even get into this kind of dogma, dogmatism and the research topic of, of that? Because obviously, as you said, there's not a lot out there as far as when I was talking about behavioral change and stuff like that. So it's not a topic I'm overly familiar with until we really started talking about this. So what kind of got you into it and get you interested in it? This is honestly something that I've been interested in my whole life. I've always just been fascinated by why we do the things we do, why we think the things that we think. And I've been fascinated by the ways in which we stay stuck mostly 
how our inability to shift or to change based on something new, how often that happens has always been something since I was a kid that I've just been so interested in. And it's what I studied when I went to in grad school. That was something that I really focused on a lot in my courses and in my writing was um, sort of tangential to extremism or just sort of more rigid, rigid cognitive structures and that way of thinking when there's just an element sort of psychologically of stuckness has just always been fascinating to me personally in my life. So it's something I wanted to pursue. And I think as you know, we've been talking about Steve, we see it so often in juries. I mean, so often. It's often. You know, you know, I kind of one other thing it started making me think and when when we were as we've been talking and having this conversation, is there really a way, let's say for example, you're a you're a dogmatic person on a certain topic and now you know, we're listening to this podcast or you and I are having this conversation. I'm thinking, gee, I'm maybe I'm dogmatic about a certain, maybe I'm dogmatic mm -hmm. about Michigan state, right? Nothing you're going to say <laughs> is going to change my opinion, <laughs> but like, you know, and I'm never going to cheer for Michigan, but let's say hypothetically, you know, is there a way to be kind of unstuck of sorts where you can get yourself more into an open system where maybe someday I might actually cheer for university of Michigan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say first thing is the awareness is key, right? It's, it's, I think that particularly with the uh, cognitive structure like dogmatism, um, you're going to have a particularly difficult time being aware enough personally that you have a dogmatic idea about something. Typically, typically because from kind of piecing together a bunch of different research, it, it seems as though there's greater potential for these dogmatic to beliefs to be there because of some sort of deep set unconscious thing. I mean, this could be something that goes back real far. This could be an entrenched idea from childhood. This could be something attached to meaning, purpose, life, something that kind of ties on to bigger, broader things than, you know, uh, uh, things like it, it could manifest in things like you're saying, Steve, you know, Michigan State versus Michigan, but that belief, that dogmatic belief could be tied to someone's you know, father who loved Michigan State, and it's sort of, it's not about Michigan State anymore. It's about holding on to the memory of someone's, you know, of, of my father who loved this place. I can't let go of it. I can't consider how someone else, you know, how someone else might be better because my dad loved this and I loved my dad and it's important. So it can be something that's not as simple to kind of rewind and, and consider. It, I think when you can sort of in your own life get to the root of why you might be having those beliefs then you can kind of go from there to figure out whether or not they're useful for you in your life yeah well i just feel like i just had a therapy session <laughs> <laughs> so you Anytime. know speaking of, you know you're you're done you know you've done a lot more like you said we've had this conversation where i'm more of a quantitative person you're more of the qualitative person i guess i'm curious too is you know how how did you even get into litigation consulting and that with kind of your background and your approach and your in your areas that you've been interested in? Yeah, I um I kind of had a, a very windy way through life and I I didn't kind of take take the most particular straightforward path. So I I started working for law firms when I was 19. Um, and I kind of stepped, I jumped in first as a receptionist, then quickly as a lit paralegal for a couple partners, and then on from there, and I've worked for lawyers ever since. So my entry was kind of working on the admin and then the paralegal side. And I did over the years, so many intakes, sat in so many depths, prepped for so many of these things and just really genuinely felt that these things, there was something there 
in addition to sort of the legal side of it that I, I wished was there a lot of the time. And, and especially kind of as we do a lot of work with, you know, with witnesses, Steve, and I did a lot of work with kind of witnesses and, and plaintiffs and parties to different cases that um, I, I felt like there was, they needed to be accompanied in a certain way, that there was, there was a way that, that, that could help everybody involved, that could help the litigators, that could help, you know, the parties, that could help the clients, that could help everybody make things smoother, quicker, better, cheaper for everybody involved if we could just kind of give people a little bit of help. So I, I went to grad school for clinical psychology and it was my goal and my plan to kind of come back and, and work in the legal field at kind of the intersection of um, the legal side of things and the psych side of things and kind of combine the two as, as we've been doing. I just think it's such a fascinating, incredibly useful, effective and cost-effective approach and way of looking, a uh, uh, different way of looking at cases. Yeah, and I think that's why you you really kind of take into the witness training, and that's kind of one of the areas you really like to to do, right? Because you that clinical side versus also the understanding of what it was like being on the other side before you were able to kind of merge that psychology into it. Yeah, I mean, totally. And I've you know spoken to many attorneys about this as I've been doing the witness training, but I think so much of it sometimes is just leveling the playing field for people, kind of letting them know that they have the right to be there. So many of the witnesses and parties that are passing through these cases are people who are wholly unfamiliar with litigation and the you know litigation process and what the heck this even entails. So it's a lot of education and just kind of uh, some work around letting people know that, you know, they can be there too and a whole mindset shift as far as how they approach their testimony and things like that. Um, but I think it's, it's a critical, it's, it's so important. It's so important. No, and, I, and like I said, I, I think you, obviously Bill and I think you do a great job. So it's, it was good to at least you get you on the, the podcast uh, finally. So yeah, Hey, you did okay. So maybe we'll come back. We'll have you on again. We'll talk to you oh, about Steve. something else. <laughs> I'd be honored. I'd be honored. So, hey, and uh, how do how do people get a hold of you? You know, let's say they, they have any upcoming cases or, or any of that type of stuff. How, how can they get a hold of you on, on LinkedIn or email? How what do they do? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, Ava Hernandez. Feel free to look me up on there. I'm always really happy to connect with anyone, especially people who are particularly interested, sort of, as we're talking about this intersection of psych and, and legal and uh Email me anytime. My email's a Hernandez at courtroomsciences.com. Be happy to work with anybody that needs it. All right. Well, like I said, Ava, I appreciate you coming on. It was good to have a good, good discussion about, about a topic, like you said, that now I'm now more interested in that I didn't know I was interested in uh, before. And like I said, kind of given a little thought into myself, right? When we talk about certain topics to realize that, yeah, I'm kind of dogmatic when it comes to, to we Michigan all are. State. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> well, uh, I don't know just to Michigan State, but we're all dogmatic about yeah, something. But we should all be dogmatic to Michigan State. My <laughs> wife would disagree, but that's hey, whatever. So, all right. Well, like I said, please check us out, courtroomsciences.com. All of our blogs, podcasts are up there. Ava's papers. Um, I think the Law 360 is up there. Ava will have some more stuff coming out. Bill and I will have some more stuff coming out. So you can always check us out there. Always reach out to me, swood at courtroomsciences.com. We always love hearing from from the fans, the guests, the people who listen to the podcast. Like I said, we really appreciate it. And kind of doing this and, and hearing from people and getting the good feedback makes it kind of all worth it. So appreciate everybody. This has been another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences.